This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, penguins and powers. With the Super Bowl in the rearview mirror, Beyonce's bounces and blackouts consigned to history, what do we do now? It's hockey season, finally, and with half the season lost to the lockout, the ice has heated up once again. But where is the polyoptics in that? David Morehouse, one of the great advanced men of all time, is now president and CEO of the Pittsburgh Penguins, and the drama of his life rivals to this polyoptician anyway, the trajectory of Sidney Crosby. House, as we called him back at the White House, will be joining us shortly. Then, we're a week away from history being made in Amesbury, Massachusetts. The estate of David F. Powers is going up for auction, and with it, a treasure of 20th century memory surrounding the Kennedy family. Dave Powers was JFK's best friend, was in the car behind him in Dallas, and I met him in 1971 as a first grader at Anger Elementary School in Newton, Mass. An amazing and mysterious figure of White House lore, we'll talk to auctioneer Dan Meter about the burden of sorting through and then selling off the treasures from deep within Dave Powers' closet. But first, what a week it was on the polyoptics front, huh? Drones are on everybody's radar, so to speak. Fox, CNN, and ABC are moving talent in and out. The Republicans and Democrats meeting in conference with President Obama going to talk to the Democrats. Can the GOP rebrand and is Marco Rubio on the cover of Time magazine its fresh face? And speaking of faces, how about that image of Hillary Clinton's refreshed website? Is this the beginning of 2016? But for me... The most compelling moment in imagery from the week came courtesy of a dead guy, Paul Harvey. Born in Tulsa in 1918, died in Phoenix in 2009. When I was an advanced man in the 80s and 90s, driving the hustings in my rental car, Harvey was an unlikely companion coming through conservative talk radio. But man, what pipes. So when I was minding my own business watching the Super Bowl this Sunday, his voice, employed in the service of Dodge Trucks, triggered this instant, and I'll say deeply emotional and positive association, just as good advertising should. The gritty imagery of our agrarian roots mixed with Harvey's voice like ice cream and apple pie. And before we get to today's show, it's worth just listening for two minutes, minus the pictures, to think about Harvey's baritone voice, combined with his cadence and inflection, and see how it can stir resonance deep within the soul. And on the eighth... Day. God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and dry his eyes and say, maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay, wire, feed sacks, and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon and then pain in from tractor back, put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. 
God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink-combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. So God made a farmer. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners, somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed, and rake, and disc, and plow, and plant, and tie the fleece, and strain the milk, somebody who'd bail a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing, who would laugh, and then sigh, and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says that he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. So God made a farmer. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. This is POTUS. So we have the rare good fortune to be able to take our microphone to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and joined by my great friend, David Morehouse, president and CEO of the Pittsburgh Penguins, about whom I talked a little bit earlier. David, welcome to Polyoptics. Uh, Thanks, Josh. Tell us how this lockout-shortened season is actually going for you so far, and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts behind running the Penguins and and how a guy like you actually came to sit in the seat that you're in. How's the season going? Season's going great. uh, We actually were on a four-game win streak. We play again tonight against uh, the Washington Capitals in Pittsburgh. And uh, so on the ice, it's going very well. Off the ice, it's going extraordinarily well also. Uh, our television ratings are higher than last year's. Our uh, our, our numbers are, are, are definitely better than they were last year, too. So things are going very well. How's uh, merchandise sales going? Well, we have a we, – we, they're going through the roof. We have a uh, – the first four games, we, we uh, have 50% off all of mer- all merchandise on game days. Uh, at our at our team store at the arena and also in the south side of Pittsburgh. So our our, our sales have been extraordinary. Uh, and there's lines at 7 o'clock in the morning in front of the store waiting for the store to open up. I was hearing you talk to another uh, Pittsburgh journalist and talked about the kinds of things that sound to me like sort of trademark Morehouse uh, techniques of having players deliver season tickets to season tickets holders in person, those kinds of things not possible in this lockout shortened season. What are the things you're doing in sort of the classic genuflection toward your fan base? We're kind of sorry we had to blow off half the season. Well, first of all, there's nothing that can kind of make up for, you know, losing half a season. So we're not under the delusion that there's something we can do to somehow make up for it. However, as you said, we do have a relationship with our fans that we is, is is somewhat different than a lot of teams have with their fans, and so we wanted to try to do some of the things that they missed, but in a condensed season. So we we weren't able to have the players deliver season tickets. We weren't able to uh, have the players deliver pizza to student rush line, and, and and a few other things that we do. So what we did instead was we offered fifty percent off all merchandise sales for the first four games, and we offered free uh, concessions. So. For the first four games, anyone with a ticket that enters gets vouchers to, to redeem for free hot dogs, hamburgers, salads, uh, soft drinks, and uh, pretzels, popcorn, various items. So it sounds to me, David Morehouse, that in as you are passing the 50-year mark of life, you're really going back to your 20s and you're a classic advanced man crowd builder all over again. Well, I, I actually, that's funny you say that. We, we had a game... 
when the lockup first ended, we had a uh, an inner squad scrimmage, and we did it at Consol because we wanted to let people in to see it. And so we decided we were going to open it up for free. Uh, and so it was it was you know nothing more than a, a training camp inner squad scrimmage, and we expected to get probably nine thousand people. We were going to we thought we'd fill the bottom bowl, and we'd be lucky to do that. So we we not only filled the bottom bowl, we filled the top bowl, and and it was like one of the events that you and I used to do together, Josh, where it was, uh, the crowd was just, you know, endless outside lining up. And so we filled both the bottom and top bowls. And then one of my staff said, you know, there's still thousands of people outside. What do you want to do? And, 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 and another one suggested we still haven't, the suites are still open. And then, so I went to the arena operators and said, okay, we're going to start filling the suites. And they said, oh, <laughs> And they said, no, we can't do that. We don't have enough staff. You know, there's, there's, you know, they're going to break things. There's nothing. So I said, well, there's five of us here. We're going to be the staff. So we'll go up and open the door, and, and we'll have someone at the door and someone in front of each suite, counting 12 or 16 people, however many of the suite holds. And so we filled the suites. And that, that, was, that reminded me more of advanced work and crowd building than anything I've done. The president, the CEO of the Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, opening the door, ushering people to their seats. You would make Tommy Hart and uh, and Charlie Duncan very proud, David. Thank you very much. Uh, do you look around at what other teams are doing, what other presidents and heads of marketing of teams are doing? You maybe look to the Red Sox and what uh, what Theo Epstein and Tom Werner and Larry Lucchino do. Are you bringing a lot of the techniques of marketing, branding, stagecraft to running a team the way that other teams might not be doing in their markets? I mean, I think, you know, when I came into this job, I think I had two things going for me. One was I grew up in Pittsburgh and I watched uh, one of the greatest brands in all sports, the Pittsburgh Steelers, and how they did things. And two, I had no experience in sports. So what was, you know, basically considered a weakness and, and, and a lot of different corners of the sports world, for me, turned into a strength because I, I didn't know you couldn't do certain things. But what I did know was I, I, I knew, you know, I knew voter ID. I knew, I knew how to communicate through political advertising. I knew how to market to voters. And, and the, the similarities between a political campaign and a sports team, are, 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 there, there are some great similarities, the first of which is they're both emotionally based decisions, and uh, it's not like selling soap. Although emotion is also involved in selling soap, but it's 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 a little deeper. And uh, I wouldn't equate the two. I mean, they're still different. It's a much different to, to to vote in an election than it is to go to a hockey game. But but there's an element of of uh, of, of likeness that I think is what we kind of tapped into. So so to answer your question, we did a lot of things that were different. We didn't, we, but we weren't afraid to look at what other teams were doing and try to replicate the things that we thought they were doing well. You know, uh, one other thing that we do in politics, David, as you know, is we <clears throat> we think about storytelling, and we think about, well, are we the best storytellers possible, or are there better people out there if, as long as they're sort of sa- staying on message with us? And I think one of the last long conversations you and I had was a couple years ago after HBO had spent a long time with you in advance of the Winter Classic, and I want to hear just a clip from 24-7, Penguins versus Capitals. Two on one, moving ahead is Malkin. It's got Crosby. Can't get it down. He scores! This year, the Pittsburgh Penguins and Washington Capitals 
are among the short lists of frontrunners for hockey's ultimate prize, the Stanley Cup. Unbelievable! But before discussions of postseason greatness can begin, each team must successfully navigate the ups and downs of an 82-game regular season. All these games are played in the comfy confines of indoor arenas. But one game is special. Each season, the NHL selects two teams to compete outside in a converted stadium packed with 70,000 die-hard hockey heads. It's an event that harkens back to the roots of the sport, a New Year's Day extravaganza known as the Winter Classic. So, David, I mean, I, I was, I, I, my hockey nostalgia goes back to Bobby Orr and the Big Bad Bruins, but I called you, I said, I'm totally rein, reintegrated with hockey after being behind the scenes with the Penguins for so long. You, Ron Burkle, Mario Lemieux, a big decision about opening cameras up to really the lives of your players. What went on in that decision-making process, and how did it turn out at the Winter Classic? Well, it started with uh, John Collins, who is the CEO of the league, and who came from the NFL and actually worked at NFL Films. He and I were having discussions you know, a year, two years in advance of that series. And we were, and what I was saying to him was, I remember when in the 70s and 80s, when I was a kid, when, when, when NFL films captured the drama of football and slowed the game down in a way that nothing else had before. And, I, I, and when I was a young kid, I would have rather watched John Facenda, John Facenda. Do, yeah. do, do an NFL film segment uh, rather than watch a, a, lot, a football game. So what I said to... John was, we need to find a way to do something similar, slow the game down, ice level shots, create a narrative around it, uh, and, and, and bring people, draw them into the game. Because we think it's the greatest sport in the world, and, and if it's exposed in the right way, we think others will, will agree with us. So, so John came to me and said, I, I have it. HBO wants to do it. Uh, and, and so we... Uh, we, we, we agreed. I, I went to, first I went to Willem Burke and Mary Lemieux, told them uh, the idea. They said yes. Once they signed off on it, it was easy. So uh, so we, we agreed to do it, and I think it was one of the best things that I've seen the league do since I've been there as far as marketing is concerned. What were, the gr- what were the ground rules? Did you peg the number of players who could be looked at, and did you have editorial control over what could be shown? No, there, it was, uh, no, there, wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of, there was no editorial control. I mean, what had to what had to occur was there had to be a trust factor between the team and the crew that was travel, and with our team, it, it was established pretty quickly. So, uh, the, the ultimate goal with such a shoot is that you forget the cameras are there and you're just doing what you do. Uh, you know, it's hard to do that because people, you know, when cameras are on them, some people become movie stars and others become very withdrawn so uh the key is, is to basically you know to be not not nondescript to be kind of incognito and to not notice the cameras and i think we achieved that what happened to that winter classic and how much does the league suffer for not having one this year uh what happened to that winter classic was we were able to activate the pittsburgh market by hosting it uh in a way that we wouldn't have been able to with millions of dollars in advertising so we we took the Winter Classic, which was uh, supposed to be New Year's Day, was, was postponed because of weather, and uh, and we turned it into uh, a week-long extravaganza. We put an outdoor rink uh, right next to Heinz Field. We had youth hockey and open skates. We had uh, you know different 
player appearances around around the region. Uh, all the local news stations led from the rink, the outdoor rinks. So we we used it as a as basically a marketing tool to expand, to broaden, and deepen the brand in the region. And you won, right? Uh, no, no, no. Oh. We, we lost, and, and it, it was. Josh, I'm, I'm sorry you brought that up. We lost, and, and it's the game that Crosby got hurt in. So oh, it was not, it was not a good game day experience. But, <laughs> I want, but it was a good marketing experience. I want to get to Crosby in a minute, but <clears throat> first I want to um, go back a little bit into the uh, Morehouse uh, career and your OVRA, uh, because you and I, I think, met in Waco, Texas, on an advanced trip. But I want to skip ahead way from there. We'll t- we'll talk maybe about the formative years a little bit, but I want to. Uh, have one clip from uh, your good friend Bill Daly, and have you share in your own words because so many else, so many other people have tried to interpret it. What happened that night? Without being certain of the results in Florida, we simply cannot be certain of the results of this national election. Let me add that Vice President Gore and Senator Lieberman are fully prepared to concede and to support Governor Bush if and when he is officially elected president. But this race is simply too close to call. And until the results, the recount is concluded and the results of Florida Florida become official, our campaign continues. All right, David Morehouse, share for our listeners uh, what brought you to Nashville that night, what role you were playing, and what happened in the 30 minutes prior to Bill Daly going out there at that moment. I, I don't know, Josh. You start with where the night Crosby got hurt, and then you go into the night that we lost the election. <laughs> but uh, that's okay. Uh, I was I was uh, working for the White House. I was a senior counselor and trip director for Vice President Gore, and we were in Nashville for the election. And uh watching the returns come in all day long. Uh, the exit polls had us ahead, had us winning Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Florida. Uh, and then, I mean, they called Florida first, that, then they called Michigan, then they called Pennsylvania. And then there was a couple other states we were waiting for, and New Mexico is one of them. And, and, and the, the math worked. If we, if we got those three big states and a couple of the smaller ones, it was going to be impossible for us to lose. So there were champagne corks popped, uh, people running around the halls of the, of the Lowe's Hotel in Nashville celebrating. Uh, we thought we had won the election. And then, you know, slowly we didn't hear anything. And then they took Florida back, which we thought was only because Carl Rove was complaining about the, some of the polls not being closed in the panhandle and different things. So we thought it was just kind of the placate the Bush campaign. Uh, and so there was never like a, like a stark contrasting moment. It was like the, the air slowly being left out of the balloon. So there was the celebratory moment and then nothing. And then, sl- and then all of a sudden on, on the news screen in the room it says Bush wins. I just remember looking up and seeing the, Dan Rather saying Bush wins. Uh, so it was uh, from that point on. Uh, I remember walking down the hallway to get the vice president, and and with, you know behind the doors you could hear people crying, and uh, and I got the speechwriter Eli Addy and uh, said we have to write a concession, and then uh, started loading the motorcade. So then uh, went down into the, the the belly of the Lowe's Hotel got in my car, which was the spare limousine 
they called it the spare to be kind. It was actually the decoy limousine, as you know, yep. Josh. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and before I got in the car, I remember Bill Daly putting his arm around me saying he was lucky to have you. I mean, it was like a funeral procession. So yeah. we get in the motorcade. It's raining. And I, at the time, it was when Blackberry was just invented. I had a Blackberry. I had a pager. I had a White House pager. I had a campaign pager, a White House phone, and a campaign phone. So get in the motorcade. We're driving to the War Memorial, and, and my phone rang. You know, it was ringing. Everything was buzzing. And, but I noticed there was a call from my wife, who was in the back of the motorcade. And uh, so I answered the phone, and she said, Feldman's on the phone. So I, I started talking to Mike Feldman, who was our traveling chief of staff, and he said, uh, the vote count in Florida is wrong. Uh, you have to stop the vice president. And I said, what? <laughs> the vote count in Florida is wrong. <laughs> and so, but you're a big guy, so Dave. We, you can do it. So we pulled up to the war memorial, and for the entire campaign, the vice president would wait until I walked up to his door, and then I'd give the thumbs up to the Secret Service agent who would open the door and he'd get out, and I'd walk him into wherever he was going. For some reason, the vice president didn't need me anymore, so he, he got out of the car and was in the building before I could even get out of my limo. So I tried to fight my way through the crowd. I was not so... Uh, not so well portrayed in that HBO movie. Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately, they had the guy fall. He was he was uh, limping. He was like uh, looked just like me, I'm sure. But uh, I, I fought through the crowd and uh, and I got up to the vice president as we were walking towards the the, the door that led to the stage, and said, uh, "Mr. Vice President, we have to go to hold." He said, "I'm not going to hold. I just called the governor. He's he's waiting on us." I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the stage and speak. And then I finally stood in front of him and said, sir, we have to go to hold. So the vote count in Florida is wrong. Everything's going to be fine. So we went into the holding room, and it's now a footnote in history. It would have been significant had we won the recount. Then it would be worth uh, a historical view. But right now, all I did was delay the inevitable. So we didn't concede that night. We conceded a few weeks later. David, people that we work for, people like Bill Clinton and Al Gore and Ron Burkle and Mario Lemieux, I mean, they're not necessarily people that want to, once they are got their mind on something, be deterred. And, you know, I've been in enough cases with Clinton to say to realize, you know, there's no winning here by telling him something he doesn't want to hear. Where do you get the gumption to do something that is anathema to all of the ideas of honor and decency that Al Gore might have had to say, once you concede, it's a, it's over, man. I mean, all, all you can do is, 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 you know what you know and you know what you don't know, and you have to stick with your conviction. And, and, and basically, uh, you know, you just do what's right. I mean, it's not, it, it really isn't that complicated. I mean, it, it, of course, you know, they're very powerful people, and you're trying to give them direction. There's there's definitely a way to do it and a way not to do it, and with each person it's different. But the core of it is just you're just honest with them, and you kind of you, you just you know you just make your point. And you're you're forceful with it, and uh, usually it works. Well, skipping ahead uh, four years, you know, two of my heroes in politics are two people who've gone back home. Uh, David Morehouse and Seti Warren to their respective uh, places that they grew up, Newton, Massachusetts. Seti's the mayor of Newton, and you uh, are basically the mayor of Pittsburgh in the way that you run the, the Penguins. Uh, but the person that you were really joined up for uh, was 2004, uh, then-Senator John Kerry. And I want to hear a little bit from John Kerry this week and get you to reflect on whether you think this is a, a good coda for his career, and finally he's 
he's sort of established where he ought to be after his career in the Senate. Let's hear from John Kerry this week. Here's the big question before the country and the world and the State Department after the last eight years. Can a man actually run the State Department? <laughs> I don't know. I, uh... As the saying goes, I have big heels to fill. From a messaging standpoint, David, how did you feel about uh, John Kerry this week? I was very happy. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, first of all, I think John Kerry would have made a great president. I think, uh, you know, he was well suited for the job. His experience in Vietnam, his experience in the Senate, I think would have uh, made for a compelling and, and thoughtful president. Uh, now, if, if there's any other job that I think he would be perfect for, it would be the, the, the Secretary of State. I think he's, uh, he's, he's, his whole life has led to this point, if you really look at it, and I think he'll be a great Secretary of State. So now you, uh, you work in 2004, you get your uh, degree from Harvard, you and Vanessa uh, are married, you start to have kids. I think you've had your fourth now, right, David? Yeah, just last month. Congratulations. Um, I want to hear a little bit of Sidney Crosby, I think, from 24-7, and, and have you sort of hone in on the way Pittsburgh is connected to its players and its team. Just the importance on being committed to your team. I think everyone feels like they have that responsibility to, to be accountable and to be there for one another. And everyone deals with different injuries or is banged up. I mean, it's a long season. The playoffs are long. I mean, you got 82 games. you got two and a half months of playoffs or whatever it is. So there's points where it's really difficult, but everyone knows it's difficult. How did the franchise continue to prosper while Sydney was on the sidelines for so long? Well, first of all, we, we had a, it, it's a very well-run organization from, from Marilyn Muir and Ron Burkle to Ray Shiro, the GM, and Dan Bosman, the coach. Uh, and I think he was able to, the coach was able to, you know, basically cobble together. Uh, and, and it was not only Sidney Crosby, you think Andy Malkin was out for half a season also. Uh, so we had a lot of injuries, a lot of adversity. But we have a lot of character players on the team, and a, and a real character guy in Dan Bosma. Uh, but Sidney Crosby is, you know, it, it, he's irreplaceable. I mean, uh, you heard him on the in the interview there. It's it's not only about what he brings to the ice and what he brings as a, as a player talent wise. It's what he brings character wise, and what he brings to the locker room, what he brings to the city, uh, and his convictions, and his sincerity, and his uh, humbleness. And I think. That's why he's connected so well with Pittsburgh. I think Pittsburgh appreciates uh, humility, definitely. I think they appreciate someone who works hard. Uh, and they've been very fortunate in Pittsburgh in the type of talent that they've been able to watch, and they've in hockey especially. Mary Lemieux, Yarmer Yager. Uh, I think we've had uh, 11 scoring champions in the last uh, 21 years, something like that. Uh, so we've had, you know, we've not only had Sidney Crosby, we've had Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin. We've not only had Marilyn Mew, we had Marilyn Mew, Yarmer Yager, Paul Coffey, uh, and, and it goes on and on. So it's been, uh, it, we've been, the people in Pittsburgh have been very lucky. They're very aware of how lucky they've been, and I think they connect very well with Sidney Crosby. David, as I watched that clip, it was over highlight reel of Sidney going up and down the ice. I don't think he was wearing a helmet back then. And, you know, obviously, uh, 
Commissioner Goodell and the NFL and the league are dealing so uh, uh, hard with the, the concussion issue, and that's not an issue that is alien to the NHL as well. And, you know, your friendship and mine go back goes back uh, 30 years almost. And I know that, you know, in, early in your life, head injury sort of was a turning point in your life. So do you, as an executive, have a different take on the head injury issue than the leagues might? I mean, yeah, I mean, it was, it, the odd thing about it was, first of all, Sidney was hurt, and we were worried about him and his health, and, and uh, first and foremost, uh, you know, whether he's going to get better. Uh, and then, you know, I, I had the history of, when I was a welder, I had a severe concussion 19, when I was 22, 1982, took a few years to recover from. So I, I, I knew what the symptoms were, and I, you know, ironically, what I discovered was, that, that while the medicine has progressed in diagnosing concussions and, and identifying, you know, whether you still have a concussion, it hasn't really progressed much in treating. I mean, the treatment, you know, regimens that we were looking at for Sydney uh, were not much different than what I had as a welder in 1982. So there, there's definitely a gap there. And, and so we noticed, you know, before the injury, but definitely after, that, you know, there, there, there needed to be rules put in place to, you know, prevent uh, headshots, and uh, it was too dangerous. So, so we were the first team to advocate for banning headshots in the league, and, uh, and we were successful in getting a rule passed. We wanted it to go further. It, 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 in the rule, it, it says intentional shots to the head. We wanted it to be any shot to the head, just like a high-sticking call. So we didn't want the onus to be on the referee to make a judgment on whether it was intentional or not. We wanted the onus to be on the player that if, even if it was inadvertent, just like an inadvertent high-sticking, it would be a penalty. So you'd, you'd be able to reduce the amount of headshots by doing that. So we, we advocated for it. Uh, at the same time, Ray Shure, our GM's son, had a concussion. And and he was out and missing school and 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 it was uh, so it, it hit home for all of us and uh, you know it was something that you know it was horrible that he had to go through and the things he had to go through to recover but we're very happy that he's fully recovered and he's back to the player that he used to be and more importantly he's back to the person that, that he he wants to be well hopefully David Morehouse uh, president and CEO of the Pittsburgh Penguins the the uh, end of the season sounds a little bit like this in Washington D.C. with President Obama. This is uh, by far the most fun thing that I'm doing today. So uh, welcome to the White House. Uh, we are extraordinarily pleased to have the world champion, yes, yes. Pittsburgh Penguins, with their third Stanley Cup. First of all, I want to congratulate Sidney Crosby on becoming the youngest captain in history to win the Stanley Cup. And Evgeny Malkin for being the third youngest player ever to be named playoff MVP. House, you and I spent the bulk of our lives behind the scenes setting things like that up. What was it like to be actually on the stage with the president as he was uh, uh, acknowledging the work of the Penguins when they won the Cup? I'll tell you what, Josh, you started off bad with the, the Crosby injury and the losing the Gore election, but you're ending well with the return <laughs> to the White House and the Stanley Cup. Uh, it was, uh, you know, that, that, that was the first time I'd been back to the White House uh, since I left. So, 
you know, since the Gore days. So it was, I couldn't think of a better way to return other than winning the presidency. Uh, But it was, uh, it was an extraordinary day for me. It was uh, emotional. Uh, It was very significant. A day I'll never forget. And uh, I hope to be there again. Uh, Maybe you and I will actually take a little uh, busman's holiday and do a trip for either Clinton or Biden or someone else in 2016. Who do you think it'll be in that summer? Uh, Hillary Clinton, the former Secretary of State, looks awful good. Uh, So, but who knows? Uh, I think uh, I think it's going to be interesting four years, and I think there will be a lot of jockeying and and a lot of different candidates on both both sides of the aisle that are going to come to the forefront at different times. And as you know. The front runner today, and also ran tomorrow. So it's it's a it's a long, grueling process, just like Stanley Cup playoffs. So uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, I'm glad to be in hockey. Uh, I'd love to return to the White House with the Stanley Cup, and uh, I'm looking forward to a great season. Well, David, if it's not uh, actually with the Stanley Cup, maybe you will after you get another cup under your belt. Go back there either as uh, the governor in Harrisburg or one of the senators uh, from Pennsylvania. Thanks. So much, David Morehouse, President, CEO, Pittsburgh Penguins, all the way to the Cup. Thanks, my man. Thank you. So as I said at the top of the show, I had a unique experience when I was a first grader at Andrew Elementary School in Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, An outside speaker one day, it happened to be Dave Powers, former special assistant and appointment secretary to President John F. Kennedy. The year was 1971, so President Kennedy would have been dead, uh, shot by an assassin's bullet in Dallas for about eight years. And it really introduced me to the presidency, to history, and to a role that would ultimately bring me to the White House in a role not dissimilar from Dave Powers. I was traveling with President Clinton for six years or so, going everywhere he went, riding in his motorcade. And when I heard a few weeks ago that the estate of Dave Powers was going to be auctioned off by McGinnis Auctioneers in Amesbury, Mass., I just had to ride away and get the catalog, and I've been had my nose buried in it ever since. We're a week away next Sunday, I think, on President's Weekend, The estate of Dave Powers will be auctioned off, and we are with one of the auctioneers, the historian of McGinnis Auctioneers, Dan Meter. Dan, welcome to Polyoptics. Nice to be with you. How did this assignment fall to you and to McGinnis? Well, that's uh, an interesting question. They they, actually, the family, there's three uh, children that Dave and his wife had, and they were struck with the dilemma of cleaning out the family home. And when they did that, uh, they were going to be selling it. They they discovered all of these things in drawers and file boxes in briefcases and uh, locked up little boxes all throughout the house. They hadn't really, you know, it was the parents' home, it was Dave's and Joe's, uh, uh, Dave's wife. And they they uh, had moved on. The children have their own lives and everything. So they started cleaning it out and they discovered all these things. So that was the catalyst. So it became to the, it, it was the point where there was so much stuff. Now you have to remember Dave was the curator the JFK Library, and he had donated hundreds, or actually a thousand or more items through the years to, to, the, to the library. So they had assumed that everything was over there, but these are things that he had kept close to himself. Now, of course, they knew the things that were hanging on the walls and little uh, 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 special items that he had placed around the house, but this stuff was locked away and locked away. Uh, so they were really unaware. So they were struck with the uh, 
uh, idea of what were they going to do. You know, there was so much stuff. They kept some specific things for themselves that they really held close to themselves, but there was so much. So they decided they would uh, t- try to, to think of the auction route and, and how best to uh, basically uh, show their father's legacy in a nice way. Uh, Dave, uh, since you met him, you saw he was a man of the people. And I think that's why President Kennedy had him around and he liked him so much. He could get the feel and the pulse of the, the American people. And I think the family really thought what a great way to, to, to promote their father's legacy by letting anyone be able to own a piece of him and a piece of what he meant to the Kennedy legacy. So uh, they contacted a number of auction houses, uh, the big ones in New York and, and uh, a couple others here in Massachusetts. But uh, uh, when push came to shove, it was a long process back and forth trying to figure out uh, uh, how they were going to do it. They, they, they chose our gallery. We're based here in the north shore of uh, Boston, and uh, uh, they loved the fact that it would be uh, handled by a, a, a company right here in Massachusetts and that we would be able to highlight and showcase Dave's life with the president right here in Massachusetts. So that's, that's basically how, how we got this stuff. And that's really the, the most unbelievable part that this stuff is sitting there. Dave retired from uh, the library in uh, 1994. He passed away in 1998. So this stuff had been sitting there really unnoticed all this time. So then now it's like a, basically a new discovery. You know, yeah. it, it, it's a true estate, a true, you know, everything came right from his home. And these are things that when you look at our catalog and you look at the items, it tells the whole story. It tells the whole relationship as uh, basically they were just right out of the war, both of them. And they were friends right up for the day in Dallas. And uh, it shows that and it shows the continuation past that in relationship to all of the members of the Kennedy family. Of course, Jackie and uh, the two children, John and Caroline, uh, and it extended through Ted, Bobby, Ethel, the, all all the way through through the years. So it's really it's really uh, interesting collection. So here at Polyoptics, we'd like to kind of sometimes get in under the weeds, and I've always been fascinated by the auction business. So before yeah. I want to talk about who Dave Powers actually was and how this relationship began and how the the catalog unfolds that shows his life, um, tell us exactly how an auction house makes itself uh, marketed to a, fa- a family whose estate is going to be auctioned off. What were, well, the, what were the advantages you offered over Sotheby's or Christie's? Because this could attract a huge crowd in New York. That's exactly true. It's exactly true. And that was the challenge. Uh, because we are, uh, uh, we've handled, you know, million-dollar paintings. We've handled a lot of things, but we're not Sotheby's. We're not Christie's. You know, we realize we're a smaller auction house in the, the scheme of things. But we, we've handled some major things in the past. And this was the challenge, exactly what you just said. How do we differentiate ourselves? So we had to come up with our own philosophy and how we would do it. Now, I don't know, like you said, you don't know too much about the auction process, but the larger auction houses basically want things that are individually worth X amount of dollars. All right, so say they might have a minimum of $8,500 for a specific item, or they wouldn't even take it to auction off. So they have to realize uh, or feel that the item would bring that kind of money, or they're not going to take it. It costs them a lot of money to sell something because they have huge overhead, huge staffing, all of those kind of issues. We're a small auction house. We don't have the overhead that they have. We certainly have overhead, but we don't have the massive overhead that a Sotheby's or Christie's might have. So we were able to look at it from the point of view as the entire collection. Now, a larger auction house would really, we would call it cull. It would take some of the top lots, maybe the top 100, 150 lots, something like that, the most valuable items, highlight those and showcase those, and 
we decided what we would do is we would break the auction up, if you look at it, into basically being able to tell a story with each lot. And then in doing so, we were able to tell a story with the entire collection so that we could take every item and treat it with the same respect, whether it's uh, the palmet jacket or if it's a specific document or whatever. We would, we would take everything and handle it all the way across the board. So you'll find lots in our sale that will have an estimate in the low hundreds, and then you'll find other estimates in the high thousands. So it runs the gamut. You know, you, you, you'll see something that will fit basically any pocketbook, you know, no matter what your pocketbook is. So that's how we differentiate it. We would handle the smaller things. We would take it in its entirety and really be able to tell a story, you know. And that's, I did it in a chronological order. So it starts with the pre-presidential years, you know, his formative years as a, as a kid, uh, the, the college years, the, the World War II experience, his first run to the House of Representatives when he first met Dave, uh, then right into the Senate campaign, and then, of course, the campaign for the presidency. So we have the pre-presidential era. Then we have the presidential era, which is the thousand days. Then from there, of course, the change of life for Dave, Jackie, the entire family, and the post-assassination. So we basically broke it down into three sections. So it, it's really thousands and thousands of pieces of paper, photographs, documents, gifts, all combined, and we made it into 723 lots. The larger auction houses, yeah, they would have taken 100, 150 things out of this and sold those for them, and then the family would have these other things that are in the bigger terms of things for the larger auction houses, they're, they're more difficult for them to make money on. My wife and I went through the catalog, and I think you have way underestimated what even some of the $150 things are going to go for because you're going to be <laughs> well, online. There's The fascination with this is endless. I want to talk specifically about one lot, lot number 483. And before I do, I want to hear Walter Cronkite as he broke into network programming on November 22, 1963. What you doing, Nancy? Cleaning up in here already? Well, yes, that's right. Ain't it a little early for that, ain't Anna coming tomorrow? Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. More details just arrived. President Kennedy shot today just as his motorcade left downtown Dallas. Mrs. Kennedy jumped up and grabbed Mr. Kennedy. She called, oh no, the motorcade sped on. United Press says that the wounds for President Kennedy perhaps could be fatal. Repeating, President Kennedy has been shot by a would-be assassin in Dallas, Texas. Stay tuned to CBS News for further details. Dan Meter, tell us about Lot 483 and what Dave Powers was doing that day and why this piece of paper is so special. Well, I can just tell you, just hearing that just now, 50 years after the fact, it's just as chilling that you just imagine as this thing is going. And when you look at it from the perspective of Dave Powers, okay, you have to understand, Lot 483, uh, this is Dave's working schedule for the day. The staff was given a schedule. Uh, Dave, as a special assistant, one of his jobs was to make sure that they would try to keep him on time, that kind of thing. So they have it down exactly, you know, basically every five minutes, ten minutes, whatever it might be, where they should be along in the progression of the day. This is Dave's working schedule for November 21st and November 22nd, 1963. Uh, they were to begin their, their trip to Texas, going to San Antonio, and then it continued on into Dallas. It was supposed to go over to uh, Johnson City at the end. They were going to stay at the 
Lincoln's Ranch, uh, but it never got that far. So what we have is Dave's schedule. And you just have to imagine, I'm in the Powers home, and I'm going through these things. Uh, we're there for hours and hours. You know, there's, there's, I'm not kidding, thousands of, of, of pieces of paper, documents and things. So we are uh, going through this stuff, and there's no sense of order. Drew, and I find these files, and these uh, just go through, and you'll find some things that relate to whatever the event might be within any time frame of the relationship with Dave and the, the president. And I come across this, and I open up the file, and I can see what it is. And it's Dave has uh, basically, minute by minute, added annotations throughout the entire schedule as to it starts out nice, you know, five hours in the plane, two and a half in the motorcade. And so there's all these pen writings all over this piece of paper that's well-worn, folded. I mean, he, you know, he used this all the time. He must have referred back to it through the years. And, and I, I, I just know. When he wrote this, the feeling comes across so strong. It's so chilling. I, I, it's really a remarkable uh, thing. He he speaks in such personal detail, and you know the pain that he was going through. You have to remember, he was in the uh, Secret Service car right behind the president when this all happened. He had was taking a video, not a video, a movie, I should say. They didn't have videos back then, but he was taking a movie, and he ran out of film in the movie uh, camera at 12.17. So we have the last shots, actually a lot prior to this, I think, the last shots that he has of him alive that he took. And you can see how close he is. I mean, there's Jackie, there's the president right there, uh, Governor Connolly, they're all right, you know, just feet away from him. So he's seeing this whole thing happen. When you read Friday, November 22nd, 1963, uh, it boils down to the, the last maybe eight or ten lines. Arise in Dallas, love feel, depart the airport in the car. Then he adds 12.30, three shots, 12.30, JFK shot, 12.36, carried my president on stretcher, race to operating room, Dr. Carrico, Tom Arum. Uh, then it says at 12.52, uh, uh, Parkland Hospital Emergency Operating Room number one, one o'clock, my president is dead. Two o'clock, left hospital for love field, Jackie Road with the casket. 2.15, carried casket aboard Air Force One. He literally carried the casket. Amazing. Air Force One. He sat with Jackie on the way the ride home uh, in the plane all the way back to the White House. They didn't. I think they arrived back in Washington around four in the morning. It's Let's just, hear a little bit from Dave Powers in his own words, uh, an interview later on in life. Clint Hill, myself, and another agent lifted the president uh, on the stretcher and with Jackie running beside us, we raced into the trauma room at the at the hospital. All during this time, uh, Jackie was was so brave. She was sitting there in a bloodstained suit, and every now and then she'd go into the room and then come back. And we sat around and prayed expecting the worst but hoping for the best. And then at one o'clock, Texas time, he was pronounced dead. Dan, that's just the saddest commentary. And yet, as you go through the catalog, all 700 lots, and you see the exchanges of emotion and happiness between the family member and him, and you see some of these photographs that show him at work, this is a guy who really loved his role in history, wasn't it? It certainly was. It certainly was. He, he really 
thought the world of President Kennedy. He, he, I, I look at it as though it's probably one of the original bromances. I mean, this guy was really the, he loved him just like a brother. Uh, and actually, we have quotes from Bobby with some of the inscribed uh, photographs and things like that. You know, and it just shows how close they were. And uh, the St. Crispian Day, you know, we few, we band of, few, we, uh, band of brothers, uh, you know, they wrote it to each other. And it, it, it just, it's it's very difficult to, uh, I, I guess I'd say you can't underestimate the, the closeness that these people had. Uh, Dave was not a brother, but he was the closest thing that he had. They said that there was that JFK had uh, two best friends. One was his brother Bobby, and one was Dave Powers. And I think that Dave lived that through his entire life, and he continued that legacy. And he, he tried to promote uh, the the true values of what the, the president was all about. And you know, uh, Jackie, I think she really, really loved Dave for that, and she also loved the fact that he stayed in close contact with her children. He wanted her. She, she wanted him to be near her children uh, right through their entire life. She actually had Dave uh, come over to uh, her house as they continued to live in the uh, Washington, D.C. area after the assassination, and Dave would go over every day at noontime for lunch. Jackie wanted that continuity. When, when you look at some of the photographs that we have, we, have, we can see the relationship of him playing with John, and, and they just she just wanted to have that around him to show this is the man that knew his father the best. Well, that's right. I mean, if you, you can we can hear... Just a moment from John F. Kennedy's press secretary, Pierre Salinger, on the moment that uh, the Kennedy's son, Patrick, passed away. And you'll hear who was with the boy when he died. Uh, Patrick Kennedy died at 4.04 a.m. The struggle of the baby boy to keep breathing uh, was too much for his heart. The president, his brother, the attorney general, and the president's friend, Dave Powers, uh, were with the baby when he died. Has Mrs. Kennedy been notified here? Not yet. That's just an amazing piece of audio, isn't it? It's really unbelievable. And we have all of Dave's notes and photographs that were uh, taken on board the helicopter when they were going to visit Jackie and the children, and you see the sadness in them, like the first visit after the death. Um, and you can just see the pain. And Dave explains in some of these notes that this pain was so difficult for the president and the first lady, and no one really understood. They never really got it. They were in ter- terrible, terrible agony. And, they, you know, they had two other children, and they were trying to be strong for them, be strong for the country. But personally, they were totally devastated. And Dave showed, I mean, Dave was right there through the whole thing you heard. And, yeah. and uh, it's really heart-wrenching. Yeah, I'd like to hear just a little bit from the first lady, Jackie Kennedy, and come back in a second. He was so sweet, it's terribly simple gold of sort of a snake. And I could just see how he loved it, he'd just hold it in his hand. So, uh, you know, that was a special present. Now that's Jackie Kennedy talking about a, a birthday or an occasion gift that President Kennedy gave to her. But the relationship between Jackie and Dave comes so through in the documents that you have. Positively. Jackie really loved Dave. She had Dave come down after the assassination. They went to Florida because she made sure Dave was right there with her through that whole process. Uh, and they continued to be friends right up to the, the very end. Um, it's, it's really, when you read some of the notes that Jackie writes to Dave and how worried she is that she, that she does not want to lose Dave with her children. She wants to make sure that Dave is there for her children throughout her life. I think it was almost like if something was going to happen to Jackie, she wanted to know, you know, Jackie herself, that she would know that Dave would be there for her children. 
you know, because he would emulate uh, uh, Jack uh, in, in their eyes. So it, it's really, it's really, you know, it's it's a, a remarkable thing. So two practical questions that I feel like I have to ask as I'm keeping my nose into the catalog. One is, um, you know, a family's estate uh, goes up for auction. There's a, a, an enormous amount of money involved. It can pay for colleges and tuitions for for generations. Uh, <clears throat> and yet there is the pull of history and the, the thought that these materials should be in the library or for public availability. To what what efforts have been undertaken to scan everything and make sure that at least a, a, a record exists of everything that will, well, will be sold, we, and what's the we, tension? We have a great relationship with the uh, Kennedy Library uh, through the family, through the Powers family, through our, our firm and the library. We've, we've made sure that we're all in contact. We all know what we have, and of course there's things that the, the library would love to have. We've been very available and open to whatever uh, uh, that might be. Um, hopefully there will be some benefactors that might see some things. Um, they certainly would have a wish list, I'm sure, of things that they'd love to have at the library. Dave was a man of the people. And I think that he would have, if you went to the library and visited him, you saw him in Newton when you went to school. Yep. He was very personable. He would invite you right in. He'd say, come on, has, take a seat in the president's chair. You know, and, and you'd sit right down there. And, uh, you know, that was the kind of guy he was. So the, you have 723 chances to be a part of this. Now, of course, there are things that are going to go for a lot of money, that they will go for a lot of money, and uh, some of those will be donated to museums, and museums may purchase them. We, we don't really know. I mean, that's uh, we won't know till it actually happens, but um, th- this is the opportunity for somebody, just the, the average person that would have liked to have a connection, they could feel like they could own a piece of this Camelot history. But for historical archiving and record-keeping purposes, are electronic scans of all the of all the materials being kept just so they can be referred back to at any time yeah, in the we, we have we have uh we will be keeping a, a, a complete uh, inventory of photographs of the documents that we have now individual notes i can't say that we have scanned every single one because there are literally thousands if you go through the catalog you know what i'm talking about they, you know hit write them on a little piece of paper then write a big piece of paper and he'd write them on the manila folders that it were you know as he thought of things he would write them down so if you're listening to, uh, to us today, uh, a week from t- tomorrow, uh, President's Day, or on S- Sunday the 17th, uh, Dan Meter, how can people participate in the auction, either coming directly to Amesbury or online? Well, that's the beauty of this sale. Sure, we're in a small uh, New England town in Amesbury, Massachusetts, but we are actually worldwide because we use an auction service that's called Live Auctioneers. If you go to our website, which is mckinnisauctions.com, you'll find all the information there so that you can actually, in your own living room, your bedroom, your office, wherever you happen to be, you have a laptop or whatever, you can actually participate in this auction from your own home. So anyone anywhere in the world can basically bid. We do have people that have been registering for a while. Uh, no bidding, of course, takes you can leave a bid through the service, but nothing is executed until auction day. Um, so anyone anywhere can bid. You can bid live from your own living room on the day of the auction just by registering through live auctioneers it tells you how to do the process and you can follow a lot if you have a specific lot in mind or if you want to just follow the whole auction you can see you can place bids you can see where the bids are so any one of your uh, listeners could partake in this auction that's that's the beauty of this auction I'm so conflicted about letting this interview actually go on the air because I want to—I don't want that many people to go online because there are <laughs> things that I want to get for a hundred bucks. Sorry, I'm so sorry. 
Dan Meter <laughs> from McGinnis Auctioneers, uh, an incredible uh, historical exercise that you've gone through, and we will see Thanks. in a week's time uh, what comes out. My wife and I are, are having an over-under. We think this number is going to go very high. Well, we'll see what happens. That's the joy of an auction. The beauty of an auction is the public will determine what these things are worth on the day of the sale. And the last two hands in the year will boil down to one, and that's where that number will lie. Keep the bomber jacket for me, will you? Just put it aside. <laughs> okay. Yes, I'm sure it'll fit perfect, too. Take care. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Thank man. you very much. Come along. Come along. I know it sounds a bit bizarre. In Camelot, Camelot, that's how conditions are. The rain may never fall till after sundown. By eight, the morning fog must disappear. In short, there's simply not a more congenial spot for happily ever aftering than here. Oh. Uh-huh.